Chapter 5 I stood outside the garage, wondering if Steve had changed his mind. My method of transport was faster than his, but he should have been here already. What took you so long? I asked when he hurried across the residential road towards me. I heard the sound of a car driving away from the nearby side street. I assumed it was a taxi and Steve hadn't wanted to be dropped off in full view of the house. Only night buses run at this time of night and at random times I needed a green public transport to figure out. You owe me money for the taxi, he whispered, looking up at the bedroom windows. I don't carry cash. It would only fall through my ghost pockets, I retorted. Fine, let's get this done, he said before walking around to the side of the house and reaching out to open the door that led to the garage. It didn't open. He pulled it again and looked at me. The neighbour's security lights drew attention to the obvious annoyance on his face. You didn't think to unlock the door? He hissed. I didn't need to, I replied, not having to lower my voice because nobody else could hear me. Stephen opened his mouth to speak but was interrupted by the creaking of the front door as it opened. I lifted my hand as a signal for him to be quiet. I recognised the sound. It could be mistaken for a car driver putting on the brakes too fast to anyone who didn't know any better. What? he mouthed. Somebody's coming, I said, pointing in the direction of the front of the house. This way, I instructed, leading Steve into the back garden, grateful someone had left the wooden gate open. I knew the person approaching us could only be my sister or Paul. Steve's eyes followed my finger when I pointed at the fence leading to the next garden. He looked at it, then at me. Go! Over the fence! I hissed. It was the sole means of escape for him. He hesitated for a second. We both heard approaching footsteps making a crunching sound over the gravel, then something scraped against the ground. It only lasted for a few seconds, stopping before either of us could identify the source. Steve turned and ran for the fence, scrambled over it and disappeared from my sight. I imagined him racing through adjoining gardens until he reached the last one. Then he would make his way home. The image in my head was not unlike the horse races Paul would watch on our rare afternoons off together. I told him it was cruel to the horses to force them to leap over fences like that, with the weight of a person on their back. The chances of a fall were too high and would result in the horse having to be put down. How would you like it if I sat on your back and made you leap over fences, I asked. He grinned and retorted, lose a few pounds and maybe I'll give it a go. I convinced myself he was joking. As a man, he couldn't understand how those words would affect the woman and make her feel self-conscious. He didn't mean to upset me. I was snapped back to the present moment by Paul standing in front of me with a shovel in his hands. The scraping sound must have been him picking it up. Would he have used it to kill Steve if he hadn't run off? Was he capable of that, or did he only limit himself to killing women during their most defenceless moments? Paul looked straight through me and at the fence. He took a step, then another getting closer. I didn't know how far Steve had gotten. I couldn't let Paul spot him and give chase. I'm the one who persuaded Steve to attempt the break-in. It was my fault for not thinking about how he would get inside the garage. I had to stop Paul from going after him. I focused on my emotions, my guilt over dragging Steve into this. My fear for his life, my resentment of Paul for deceiving me for so long, 
and at myself for not realising anything was wrong. I stared at the shovel and felt surprised when Paul appeared to lose control over it. To anyone else it would have looked like he flipped it around and smacked himself in the head with the flat side of the shovel. Yes, I exclaimed, as if I had just scored the winning goal in an important football match. I was never the sporty type when I was alive, but in that moment I could feel the victory sports people must experience when achieving that all-important goal, or after crossing the finish line of a marathon. Paul lay sprawled out on the grass, dazed and swearing. I reminded myself of his secret activities as a killer, not like the man I fell in love with. That man was a character who Paul portrayed. He didn't exist any more than the cast of a film did, other than as actors who went back to their real lives when the filming finished. His real life consisted of murdering women. I left Paul alone, knowing he was in no fit state to kill my sister or anyone else that night. I arrived back at Steve's house before he did. I stood in one of the front of one of the bookcases, reading the titles when he ran back to the house panting and locking the door behind him. Key, deadlock, chain, a second key. I am so sorry, I said. He stumbled backwards, grabbing at the wall, then a bookcase before steadying himself on the banister at the bottom of the stairs. For what? Scaring the shit out of me just now, or outside Paul's garage earlier, he asked. Both, I suppose. But I made sure Paul wouldn't follow you. What did you do? he asked. His expression grew more serious and concerned than scared. I couldn't help noticing him glance around, almost as if expecting Paul's ghost to appear and demand his help. Relax, I didn't kill him. I hit him with a shovel, but only injured him. He's still alive. He seemed surprised at that, then almost proud when I told him how I'd focused my mind to move the shovel in Paul's hand. Maybe I can do the same on the garage door that I offered. There's no way I'm going back there, Steve stated. I wanted to argue, but couldn't bring myself to insist he went back. I'd put him through enough already, turning his life upside down since the moment I met him outside my mum's house. I considered using my newfound mind powers to remove the evidence myself. Moving the shovel to hit Paul was completely different to moving the basque all the way to the police station, though. It would be difficult, if not impossible. Not to mention all the attention it might attract, I smiled to myself at the notion of the Basque seeming to float to the police station by itself. Then how would I alert the police that it was evidence of Paul's murderous ways? I'm an idiot, I announced. No, Steve said. His one-word reply lacked any conviction. I never considered how we might get the evidence to the police, or how we would let them know what it is. I'm guessing you claiming you can see dead people wouldn't go down well. Not so much, he agreed. I wondered if he ever tried to tell anyone in authority about his ability before. He still looked a little pale and shook up from our attempted burglary and almost getting caught, so I didn't think it was a good idea to ask. Sorry, I said. I shouldn't have asked you to go back there. I decided to go check on my mum. I heard Steve call out something as I closed my eyes and thought about my mum's house. I was unable to make out the words, so. They were distorted as if I was hearing them in the void while I was somewhere between places. My mum's house looked different when I got there. There were boxes stacked around the furniture. I spotted my mum sitting on the armchair in the middle of them, 
She held the phone against her ear. As she barked orders, a weather was unfortunate enough to be on the other end. She was moving. I worked that much out from the boxes and the instructions over the phone to make sure the van arrived by 11 in the morning. I didn't understand it. She loved that house. We all lived there together. Me, Emma and Mum. And Dad before he passed away. The thought of Dad jolted me out of my thoughts about the house. Had he crossed over? I hadn't seen him since I died. I hadn't seen any ghosts. I would have to ask Steve about it later. As my mum finished the call, I asked myself how I would know where she was moving to. I panicked that I might never be able to find her again. We weren't close when I was alive. I don't know when we started to drift apart. We didn't have problems when I was a child. Maybe the problems began after Dad died. Mum never allowed me to visit him in the hospital. What I can only describe as an apparition appeared to the left of the boxes. I remained in my mum's house, but my mum of the present moment remained oblivious as the scene from my past played out. Why can't I visit Dad? A younger version of myself demanded. The red cardigan, matching skirt and white blouse told me I must have been in secondary school by that point. He's very ill, darling. Mum made a sniffling sound while wiping her face. Then why can't I see him, I asked again. If he's ill, I couldn't finish the sentence. I was 14 and aware of death. Although I didn't know anyone who had died, my mum's logic made no sense. If my dad was seriously ill, why would she insist on preventing me from saying goodbye in case he didn't make it? The doctors won't allow it, she wiped her face again. I was too upset and angry to realise back then she wasn't crying real tears at all. It was years later when both Emma and I picked up on the fact that she would cry whenever things didn't go her way. I hate you and if Dad dies it's your fault I didn't get to see him, the younger me snapped before grabbing her school bag and storming out of the house. I had pinpointed when the relationship with my mum started to deteriorate. I also saw what a horrible person I was, fake tears or not. It must have been difficult for my mum to know she was losing her husband, the father of her children. As the scene disappeared, I turned to look at my mum in the present moment. She finished a phone call then sat in silence, staring at the boxes. She didn't cry, but her eyes seemed sad and her face looked much older. Mum always looked young for her age. The boys at my high school would make crude comments about her. Men around her own age must have found her attractive too. I don't remember her dating anyone after Dad, though. I glanced over at the clock and realised it was almost three in the morning. It's been a busy day, especially for a dead person, I thought. I had the impression that the afterlife would involve more rest. I chose to go back to Steve's, not wanting to watch my mother look so morose. And I didn't want to watch over Paul as he nursed his head injury while planning his next murder. I'd rather have my ankles and wrists chained together and be escorted down to hell. I was surprised to find Steve still awake. He sat on the sofa staring at something on his laptop. Knock, knock, I said, lowering my voice, not wanting to startle him again. There's been a murder, he announced, instead of greeting me with a hello. What? I wondered why he seemed so keen to tell me. It's breaking news on the Manchester Evening News website. Someone discovered the body of a dark-haired woman down an alley in the northern quarter. Some people on Facebook are saying her throat was slit, but the police haven't released any more details yet. But Paul, I began. 
It happened around midnight when we were outside Paul's house trying to break into the garage. It wouldn't have been him. There's no way he made it into town, murdered someone and got back to Selford Keys in time for you two. Steve trailed off while holding an imaginary shovel in his right hand and swiping it through the air. Shit, I honestly thought I'd figured out the killer, I said. Guilt hit me over attacking him with a shovel. A queue of questions forced their way into my head. Why did he move on so fast? What about the laundry in the garage and all the times he claimed to be working on the car? Where was he during those times? Was he genuinely not the killer? Or could he be working in a murderous tag team? I need to go, I said. Where? Steve asked. To Paul's. Maybe he's not the killer, or maybe he just didn't kill tonight, but he's hiding something and I need to know what it is. Steve looked like he might be about to argue, but stifled the yawn as he opened his mouth. You must be tired. Go get some sleep, I told him. I promise not to do anything stupid.